So I'm very happy to be with you today. As uh, Chris said, I've been campus minister at Western Carolina University for, I was corrected, I guess 11 years now. This is the 11th year, okay, at least 10 years, a little while. Um, and uh, I am married, and my wife Joni and I have six children, uh, ages, oldest is 16, and the youngest is three, uh, two girls and four boys, and we have uh, several sheep, and we have an indeterminate number of chickens, and we have a uh, ornery cow that we, we care for, so we have a, quite a chaotic little life uh, going on in the mountains there. Uh, but that's me, and uh, I wasn't kidding earlier when I said Chris asked me to talk about, if I could talk about the domestic church, and I said, well, if you can't find anyone else, um, you know, and then he called me back five minutes later and said, ah, oh, I can't find anyone else. Um, so I'm more than happy to talk about the domestic church. I think it's a wonderful topic, and um, I was trying to think, what am I going to say about the domestic church? And for these in-services, for the topics, we like to solicit you know, what topics are you interested in? And I know a lot of the regional coordinators like to, to ask our regional people, if you have topics you want to hear about, let us know. So I thought, oh, I'll find out who it was that wanted to hear about the domestic church, and then I can kind of, you know, tailor my comments towards that particular interest and see where it was, where, where is the interest coming from? So I asked Chris, and I said, who was it that suggested the topic of the domestic church? And he said, I think it was you, Deacon Matt. <laughs> so I was worried that I might be the only one interested in this and I would show up today and there'd be nobody else here. Um, so I crafted my talk around what I'm interested about in the domestic church and hopefully you guys are interested about it um, as well. Uh, I wasn't uh, nervous or intimidated until about five minutes ago, though, when I was talking to one of our new campus ministers, Scott, sitting over there, and he said, I'm really looking forward to this talk because one of my favorite master's classes was on the domestic church. And I thought, oh, he should be giving this talk. I shouldn't be giving this talk. We have some educated people in the room. Um, most of you, I'm assuming, are familiar with this idea at least, the terminology of the domestic church. Um, if you've done any kind of reading or study on Christian family life, on uh, the sacrament of matrimony, you, you can't help but have run across this term. Uh, but what I want to do today, what I'm hoping to do today, is to delve just a little bit deeper into the term itself, into um, its origins, into its, its meaning, and into its, um, its implications uh, in our practical day-to-day -day life. Um, I want to look specifically at how our understanding of the term has developed since the Second Vatican Council. Um, and then finally, after lunch, I want, in our session after lunch, I would like to offer what I can uh, as far as some practical advice uh, to see how we can live out the church's vision of the domestic church in our own homes and in our families. But I want to start, before I get into all of that, by just sharing some thoughts that I've had about the term itself, domestic church. It's an interesting phrase, if you think about it, right? The word domestic comes from a Latin word, domus. I'm going to try writing it on this fancy whiteboard here. I have to write slower to get this to work, which means you can actually read my handwriting. 
So domus is a Latin word that just means a home, right? Um, and domesticus is belonging to the home. That's what the word means, domesticus, belonging to the home. And what makes our homes different than any other building is that that's where we live, right? That's the place where we reside, and that makes a home much more intimate and much more familiar to us than a school or an office or a factory or a warehouse or any other building that we may spend time in. We might live out our public lives in these sorts of environments, right? But home is where we reveal who we are in private. It's a much more intimate setting. And so a domus is a very intimate space. It's a very personal space. It's our native habitat, so to speak, right? Where our lives find their most personal expression. We have more control over our environment in our homes, and we really can be ourselves a lot more openly and a lot more freely in our homes. So that's, that's what a domus is. It's our home. Now, the next word, church, when we talk about the domestic church, the word church, and I'll get to this in a minute, is actually of Germanic origin. Um, but the word, we use it as an English translation of a Greek word, ecclesia, and ecclesia, oh, I'm running too fast, ecclesia, I fail to see how this is a big step above a whiteboard. <laughs> ecclesia, you'll have to trust me, that says ecclesia. The, uh, the Greek word ecclesia means those who are called out. Those who are called out. So called out from what? Right? Called out from the world. We are set apart from the world as members of the ecclesia. We've, we're called to be kind of removed from the world, separated from the world, right? It's, ecclesia is a word that's got a certain motion to it. It's an action word. It implies a mission, right? You're not just called out for the sake of being called out. You're called out from the world for a purpose, for a reason, right? Ecclesia is an outward-facing word. And so it provides this interesting juxtaposition to the word domestic, which is a very inward-looking word, right? Things that are domestic are, are homey. Domestic implies a dwelling in, not a calling out. So if ecclesia is a calling out, our domus, our home, would be where we're called out from, right? It's like when, um, when Elisha was called by Elijah, right? You remember Elisha was called by Elijah to come and follow him as a prophet, and Elisha wanted to go, he just wanted to go home and kiss his mom and dad goodbye, like, who wouldn't want to do that, right? <laughs> he wanted to go home and kiss his parents goodbye. And Elijah kind of chastised him for that, right? Why? Because Elisha was being called out to be God's prophet, and that involved this expectation that he would be leaving his former life behind. Um, or you can think of the man in the gospel that Jesus called, and the man said, well, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You must go and proclaim the kingdom of God, right? And we kind of look at our Lord and we're like, 
calm down a little bit. Like, <laughs> you're being really harsh here. But it illustrates that point that when you're called out by God, there is this expectation that you leave this former life behind, that you have a sense of detachment for that, right? So, you know, there's this built-in tension between this idea of home, this idea of, of the domestic, and this idea of being called out and sent on, on mission. And that, that built-in tension makes me think of the phrase, in the world, but not of the world. You guys heard that phrase to describe Christians, right? Christians are supposed to be in the world and not of the world. Do you know where that comes from? Anybody? Who said it? Anybody know who says it? Maybe he said it, I don't know. <laughs> it's one of these things that we quote all the time as if it's scripture, right? And, but it's not, you won't actually find it phrased that way in scripture. But it actually comes from something that Jesus said. It comes from uh, the prayer of Jesus that's related in John's gospel in chapter 17. Now, he doesn't say it word for word like that, but this is what Jesus says. He's speaking to the Father regarding his disciples. He's praying for his disciples. And if you're taking notes, this is starting in verse 14, chapter 17 of John's gospel. Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I gave them your word, and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. So Jesus is identifying his mission with the mission that he's giving to the disciples. So we, like Jesus, no longer belong to the world. We were born in the world, but by baptism we have been born again in spirit and in truth as adopted children of God. So like Jesus, we no longer belong to the world. But like Jesus, we have been sent into the world. So our origin is in the world. As members of the ecclesia, we have been called out of the world. But then the one who called us out has sent us back into the world, which we no longer call our home, but it's our mission field. Okay, you see that dynamic there, right? The world was our home. We've been called out. Now heaven is our rightful home, but we're sent back into the world that's now our mission field. And your domicile, your home, is the principal place where you reside in the world. That means your home should be a place of mission. Do we think about our homes as places of mission? Now, the Second Vatican Council had, um, had a lot to say about the role of the laity. It had a lot to say about the role of the laity, especially as it pertains to evangelization, to our evangelizing mission. 
And evangelization, and this, is, this has been uh, a constant theme of the church since the Second Vatican Council, evangelization is principally meant to be the call of the lay faithful. Why? Because the lay faithful are out in the world, right? The lay faithful are in the neighborhoods, you're in the schools, you're in the offices, you're in the businesses, you're in the marketplaces. If we're supposed to shine the light of Christ in all of these places, you've got to be where those, you know, where those people are. You have to be in those places. And so the laity, the lay faithful, have that primary task of evangelization. But we cannot neglect to also bring the gospel into our own homes, not just into the neighborhoods, into the workplaces, and the marketplaces, and the schools, right? But into our own homes. Because if you don't live with Jesus in your home, you cannot be an authentic witness to him out in the workplace or in the marketplace, right? So our first mission, really, before we go and evangelize the outside world, is to evangelize our homes, is to make sure that our homes are places of evangelization. But, but, and these are just my thoughts on this, right? Your home is also your place of rest. This is equally important, I feel, because you can't be out in the mission field all the time without rest. Even Jesus took time to retreat by himself into the wilderness to get away from the crowds, right? But when Jesus did that, it wasn't so that he could sit on the couch in his pajamas, prop up his feet, and binge watch Netflix, right? Not that that's bad, right? But Jesus stepped away from the crowds in order, and took his rest in order that he might commune more intimately with the Father in prayer so that he could be more prepared to go out and, and, and work his mission. So I'm not saying that when you're at home you shouldn't hang out in your pajamas and watch Netflix. You know, that's, that's fine to do, but are your homes also places where you can commune with God? Are you conscious about that? If the word of God, the word of truth, is supposed to be our protection out there in the mission field, if it's supposed to be what we're proclaiming out there in, our, in the mission field, are our homes places where we can reconnect with that word? Places that we can recharge our, our spiritual batteries, right? And uh, enable us to kind of go out the next morning better prepared to engage in that shared mission of evangelization. So in other words, if we're supposed to bring God's word out to the world, we have to take care to receive God's word ourselves when we're at home. And our homes should be places that we intentionally think of as environments where that encounter happens. So do we take care to ensure that, that our homes are environments where it's easy for us to pray, where it's easy for us to connect with God, right? So all that is just to say there's a creative tension, I think, in this idea of a domestic church that I personally kind of find energizing because to me it's, it's similar to the tension that we all feel in our lives as disciples of being still in this world but yet called to a higher world, right? That tension exists, especially within our own homes. So that's my brief little introduction. Um, but before I leave that, though, there's one other thing I want to point out, and this is, has to do with the word church. I told you I'd come back to this. The word church is a German word. It's not a Greek word. Let's see if I can write this. This board is making me look like I'm a calligrapher. Look at that fancy little C. 
Um, the word church is, is Germanic, but it actually does have a, a Greek origin, uh, but not the word ecclesia. It comes from another Greek word, and that is kordiakon. That's supposed to be a U there. It's shortened. It's a shortened form of kordiakon uh, doma, which kordiakon doma literally meant the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, right? And that's where we get the word church from. Now, the idea that God makes his dwelling place in a specific building, a specific home, right, among us, goes back to the Old Testament. We have the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that was originally housed in a tent, but then eventually came to be housed in the temple. And in the temple in Jerusalem, the specific place where God's presence dwelt was in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, right? The tabernacle. Uh, and that's where the ark was housed, and it contained the tablets for the Ten Commandments, it contained Aaron's staff, it contained the manna from, from Exodus, and that's where the presence of the Lord was said to dwell. And so the temple in Jerusalem literally was God's house on earth. It was the Kuriakon Doma. It was the house of the Lord, right? Remember when Mary and Joseph lost Jesus for a little while? Can you imagine? Uh, they lost Jesus, and they found him in the temple, right? And he kind of looked surprised. He's like, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? Right? So the idea is the temple is the house of the Lord, and, and rightly so, rightly understood. So we too, just like there's a tabernacle in the temple in Jerusalem, we too have tabernacles in our churches, right? And they serve the same, same purpose. They house the presence of God, the consecrated Eucharist. Not manna from Exodus, right? But the true bread that comes down from heaven. Not the tablets containing the law of Moses, but the one who came to fulfill that law. So God's presence is there in the tabernacle of every Catholic church in a much more tangible way than he was even in the temple of Jerusalem. And so any Catholic church can rightly be regarded as a house of the Lord. And that's why we... We took this word in Germanic languages from kuriekon, right? Or in English, church. But it's only in Germanic languages like English that we, we use the word church as a translation of ecclesia. In, in all of the Latin documents, um, like from the Second Vatican Council and, and, and all the patristic documents, the word that's used to describe the domestic church is not kuriekon, it's ecclesia, it's that calling out. But I still think it's interesting for us to think about and consider the meaning of that word church uh, when we're thinking about the domestic church, to think of church as being the Lord's house, God's house. Because again, when we go into a church, when we go into God's house, we do so so that we can receive the Lord, not to, to have an encounter with Jesus and then leave him there, right? but to have that encounter with, with Christ so that we can take him with us. That's why at the end of Mass, we're told to go, right? Ita misa est, which is Latin for get out of here, go, right? Go into the world, take what you've received in here out and spread it around, spread the gospel. You're being sent. The word misa from ita misa est, the word misa is where we get the word mission from. We're being sent. So we go into the Lord's house to receive the Lord with the idea of bringing him back out. And so the domestic church 
the idea behind the domestic church is that we invite the Lord back into our homes with us so that our house also becomes a house of the Lord. We might not have a tabernacle in our living room, but the Lord is supposed to be living in our house through us, through the presence of the baptized faithful who have been infused with the life of God, his divine grace. Right? So if we truly do carry the presence of the Lord with us, then our houses are also houses of the Lord. Right? So another interesting way of thinking about this idea of domestic church. Um, one final thought on this. Earlier this summer, I was um, attending a continuing education class for, for deacons in our diocese, and the presenter was talking about the effect of being a sacred minister um, on our home lives. And um, he used a phrase that stuck with me. I, I wish I had written it down so I don't have to worry about paraphrasing, but he was saying that the deacon, as a sacred minister, is called to live in the sanctuary, and so his home, and more importantly, his home life, should have the scent of the sanctuary about it. And I thought that was a lovely phrase, not just because I like the smell of incense. but right. uh, And that doesn't mean you have to literally burn incense in your home, although you can. Um, but I think that that's a beautiful phrase that applies to every baptized Christian. Every one of us should be bringing the scent of the sanctuary into our houses as well. And not just physically into our houses, but into our family relationships. It should infuse the air of our home about us, right? We should be inviting Jesus daily to live where we live so that our homes become de facto tabernacles because we live there and Christ lives in us, right? Okay. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit and start to look at how the church specifically has used this term domestic church, right? Domesticus ecclesia. Um, and if you look up the term domestic church in the catechism, you'll find that it's actually used in three places, three different places in the catechism. The first was, is the, sac the section on the, uh, the sacrament of matrimony, which is no surprise, right? Because when the church talks about the domestic church, it's referring to the family, first and foremost, and the sacrament of matrimony is the sacrament of the family. Uh, Christian family life finds its origin in that sacrament, and so there's a whole subsection there in the catechism just entitled the domestic church. But we also find the domestic church being um, spoken about in the section on morality in the catechism, specifically the section dealing with the fourth commandment, which is to honor our father and mother. Uh, and again, no surprise there, because the fourth commandment uh, is where we get into issues of uh, morality involving family life, which is the life of the domestic church. Does anyone want to venture to guess, or maybe you know where the third place in the catechism is that mentions domestic church? Any guesses? None? Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ease the suspense. It's prayer. It's a section on prayer. Which might come as a surprise, but it makes sense if you think about it, because where is it that we first learn to pray? At home. It should be at home, right? Kids learn to pray from watching mom and dad and older, older siblings from their family members, okay? Um, so we learn to pray within the context of the domestic church. And this is true not just for children, but throughout our, our lives. Our homes 
should be places of prayer, right? If prayer is something you only do once a week when you're at the parish, you know, you need to step up your game. We're, we're called to be people of prayer, and that means our homes should be places of prayer. So we'll look at each of these three sections over the course of, of the day. But I want to start with a section on matrimony. And if anyone hasn't gotten a copy yet, there are copies up here of uh, some handouts that I had prepared. All these are, are the quotes that I'll be, I'll, I'll be quoting from to save you from having to try and write them down. I didn't want to have to write them on the, on the board or anything. So this way you have the quotes printed there for your reference. So they're not there to distract you from my talk, but to uh, uh, enable you to listen a little bit more freely because you don't have to worry about writing things down. So the first place that domestic church is mentioned in the catechism is on the sacrament on matrimony. And we'll start by looking at paragraph 1655. And you can follow along if you have the handout. Christ chose to be born and grow up in the bosom of the holy family of Joseph and Mary. The church is nothing other than the family of God. From the beginning, the core of the church was often constituted by those who had become believers together with all their household. And that's a quote from Acts 18.8. When they were converted, they desired that their whole household should also be saved. These families who became believers were islands of Christian life in an unbelieving world. And so there's three different references that the Catechism makes in that paragraph to the Acts of the Apostles. In the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with Acts, you should get familiar with Acts. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament because it's the history of the early church. Right? The beginning of Acts, uh, it begins with the ascension of Jesus and that time before Pentecost when the church consisted of, of Mary and the Apostles and a small number of other faithful men and women. We're, we're told about 120. That's what the church consisted of in all uh, at the beginning of Acts, right? So 120 people could easily fit in this room. It'd be a little tight, but we could all fit in this room, right? And as an aside, if you think about it, we have the 12 apostles, or 11 at that time, because they hadn't elected a replacement for, for Judas, and 120 people. If we, we talk about a priest shortage today, if we had the same clergy to laity ratio today as we did then, that would mean one bishop for every ten members of the faithful. <laughs> but it would also mean having people like Jesus' mother and Mary Magdalene on hand for spiritual direction. So, <laughs> so not, not too bad, not too bad. But by the end of Acts, um, which Acts takes us up to about the year 63, by the end of Acts, the church had expanded out from Jerusalem. You could even say exploded out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into Cyprus and Asia Minor, into Greece and Ephesus, and even all the way out to Rome, kind of fulfilling in, in just really less than three decades Jesus' last words to the apostle, which are, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's phenomenal growth in the church in just those first couple of decades. And what we see in the book of Acts is not just growth involving individual conversions, but entire households would come and join the church. Right? People were being converted and their homes were being converted as well. And, and the verse that the Catechism quotes from specifically is, is 18.8. And there Paul is in Corinth and he's preaching to the synagogue and that verse tells us that Crispus, who was one of the elders in the synagogue, 
quote, believed in the Lord together with all his household. That's where that phrase comes from. And that phrase is actually used several times in Acts relating to Christian initiation. And so it seems that very often in those early days, becoming a member of the church was a family affair. It was not something done in isolation. So one of the other references that the Catechism cites is Acts 11.14. And what's going on there, this is when Peter has his vision um, uh, of... uh, Well, actually, he's talking about his mission to the Gentiles, and he's relating the vision that he had of all of the animals being lowered to earth on what looks like a big sheep, right? And God saying, you know, kill and eat, right? That these are not unclean animals any longer. Um, And so he's relating this vision, and after he relates this vision, a man appears from Caesarea summoning him to another man's house. And when he gets there, the man tells Peter, that he had, he had also had a vision, that he had seen an angel who told him to summon Peter and that Peter would, quote, declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so in this man's house, Peter preached to them and his entire household was brought into the church. And so here we have a perfect example of the home, literally, as the place of evangelization. This is the context in which all of these encounters, these conversions took place. And then finally, the last uh, passage from Acts that this paragraph in the Catechism cites is 1631. And here we have Paul and Silas, and they're imprisoned, and an earthquake occurs, and it shakes open the doors of the prison, and all the prisoners escape. And then so you have this poor prison guard, and you just feel so bad for him because he's like, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble, you know. (laughs) He's like, I failed in my duties. All the prisoners escaped. And he's getting ready to kill himself. And Paul comes back and and comforts the man, right? He's like, no, 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 we're still here. We're still here. It's okay, right? And then the man, the guard, asks Paul. he's, He's filled with gratitude, and he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he's only asking in the singular, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So it's an interesting transition, right? The man didn't ask about his household. He just said, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then Acts continues, it says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them at that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once with all his family. Then he, the guard, brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced with all his household that they had believed in God. And I, I read that whole passage there, not just the one, the one verse, because if you look at the context of this, it shows us beautifully how this man's conversion, number one, it wasn't just an individual affair. It was something that he did together with his family, and it was something that affected his whole family. And, it's, um, you know, and then when they were baptized as a family, they also celebrated as a family within their home. Right? They invited Paul back into their home, they set out food before him, and the whole household rejoiced. Right? So we see the household, the home, not only as a place of evangelization, but as a place of celebration. A place to celebrate the results that evangelization has brought about. 
And as I was reading this, preparing for today, I couldn't help but think of like all the little receptions we have in our parishes whenever there's a First Holy Communion or um, after Easter, we have people brought into the church, we have cake and we have punch and we have a nice little party and then what happens? People go home, right? Are we encouraging people to celebrate the sacraments in their homes, with their families, with their friends, right? I, I usually, when I have people in RCIA um, or, or receiving any kind of sacrament, you know, I encourage them, go out to dinner with your family, right? Or have a party at home. Do, do something. Don't just have the cake and the punch at the church and then just go back home like nothing happened. Because these sacraments that we're being converted into don't just affect our participation in things at church. They ought to be affecting everything about our lives, especially our home lives, right? So we should celebrate these things at homes with our families. So I think this is one of the key things to really understand about the domestic church and the idea behind the domestic church. And that is that what we do at church, what we receive there in the church, what happens to us there ought to be affecting our home lives. We ought to be bringing it home with us. We ought to be living it out in our homes as well, right? Because that's where we're called to live out the faith, to put it into practice. And there are some challenges here, too, where we're talking about whole families being converted and, and households being places of evangelization. I don't want to give the impression that in, in Acts, in those early days, conversion to the Christian faith was always a family affair, right? It, just like it's not now. Um, families can be divided when it comes to religion. Jesus himself said that it would be this way. In Luke um, chapter 12, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For henceforth in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against her mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People converting to Christ can expect at times to be challenged by their families and even opposed by their families. Right? Jesus even says in, in Luke 14, 26, that we need to be prepared to hate our fathers and mothers, wives and children and brothers and sisters to follow after him. Now, he also says that we need to be prepared to hate ourselves. The reason why is, is not that we are supposed to literally hate our family members or hate ourselves, but Jesus is calling us to sacrifice, and he's preparing us to make that sacrifice, to take up our cross. He's saying that being his disciple involves being willing to let go of things in this world, even those things in this world that we find most precious and that are most dear to us, which would be our family connections, right? If if those family connections prevent us from giving ourselves freely to God. Right? So many times in, in the New Testament, households did not convert together. And St. Paul actually addresses this directly in his letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 7, he, he talks about the matter of marriages when one spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not. He says, if the non-believing spouse consents to remain in the marriage... If they're okay with being married to a Christian, then they should remain. But if the non-believing spouse is not willing to remain, then the believer should let them go. 
the Christian is not bound to them. And we still teach this in the church today, right? Because we believe that for a marriage to be sacramental, both parties have to be baptized Christians. If only one party is a baptized Christian, it's a natural marriage, which is still a good, but it's not a sacramental marriage. And natural marriages can be ended by divorce, as a sacramental marriage cannot. So we still follow this teaching of St. Paul. But Paul also speaks about how a believing spouse is able to consecrate a non-believing spouse, if that non-believing spouse is is open to remaining in the marriage and and is willing to stay. And that touches on an important reality. Because of the intimacy of home life uh, and family connections, especially those that are bound in marriage, even a non-sacramental marriage, even a natural marriage, members of a family, members of a home, can have a real spiritual influence on one another. What consecrates one person can have a consecrating influence on all in the household. Likewise, something that defiles one person can have a harmful influence on all in the household. There's a real spiritual connection among families that's not just physical, right? It's not just a physical connection that binds us together, but there's a real spiritual connection as well, and this is what St. Paul is getting at. Now, whenever we, we read of the domestic church being used in, in, in any kind of church document, it kind of assumes we're talking about a context of a sacramental marriage. And this can present some problems down the road in terms of practical application, which we'll touch on later. So, for example, can a single person's home ever be considered a domestic church, right? Or what about a married couple's home if only one of them is a believer? Does that constitute a domestic church? Well, we'll get into that in a little bit later today. But for now, I just want to note that when the catechism uses the term domestic church, it presupposes that there's a sacramental marriage lying at the heart of that domestic church. And it talks about those families that are rooted in this sacramental uh, bond uh, are islands of Christian faith living in an unbelieving world. Uh, And it goes on to say in paragraph 1656, in our own time, in a world often alien and even hostile to faith, believing families are of primary importance as centers of radiant living faith. For this reason, the Second Vatican Council, using an ancient expression, calls the family the Ecclesia Domestica. And here we finally get to that specific term, Ecclesia Domestica. And I find it noteworthy that the catechism says believing families are of primary importance as centers of faith, living faith. Not the parish, not the diocese, but believing families. And I think that that's something that every catechist figures out pretty early on in your ministry, right? That the family's faith has to be first. You could, have, you could be the best catechist. You could be just the, the most well-educated, the most dynamic teacher. You could, you could be a, a living saint. You could have a wonderful pastor in your parish that just supports everything you do and has such a heart for teaching the faith of the children. You could have a beautiful parish community supporting you, right? All the right tools, all the right situations. But if what you are passing on to that child is contradicted 
by mom and dad at home, then there's a, you know, there's a very great chance that all those lessons in the faith are not going to bear much fruit in that child's life. I say chance, not certainty, because the Holy Spirit, you know, has, has ways of overcoming adversity, right? But it's, it's very unlikely. On the other hand, if you have a child that has a home life where the faith is upheld and taught and, most importantly, actually lived out by the parents, right, then even if the things in your parish are not so hot, right, and even if, if, if you're only doing a halfway decent job as a catechist, you know, that child still has a really good chance of becoming a faithful and devout adult um, where the faith really bears fruit in their life because of the good example of their parents. And we know this to be true because we see it lived out every day in what we do. And yeah, there are always exceptions, right? There are always exceptions to that. But in general, we know that believing families are of primary importance as centers of that living, radiant faith. Um, and then the Catechism goes on to cite the Second Vatican Council with that specific term, Ecclesia Domestica, or Domestic Church. And the, uh, the specific document there cited is Lumen Gentium. And Lumen Gentium is, um, uh, is, it means light of the nations, but it's the, domest- this is the dogmatic constitution on the church, which means that this is the document where the church talks about what she believes regarding herself what the church believes about the nature of herself, right? And there's a couple of things to note about Lumen Gentium. Um, Chapter 1 begins with the mystery of the church, which is centered on Christ, which is as it should be, right? The church is the body, Christ is the head, so we're going to talk about the head before we talk about the body. So chapter 1 is all about Christ. And then chapter 2, you might think that chapter 2 would be about bishops, right, um, who carry out the line of apostolic succession, or about priests who make Christ present to us in the sacraments, right? But no, chapter 2 is about the people of God, the people of God. The fathers of Vatican II did get around to talking about bishops and priests and the hierarchy of the church, but not until chapter 3. Um, not until after talking about the people of God in general. Now, sometimes I've heard people say this, and, and it's not quite right. I've heard people say that the Second Vatican Church talked about the laity before they talked about the clergy, and that's not really accurate, because the people of God consist of all the baptized, laity and clergy together. And there is a separate chapter in this document that just deals with the laity. That's chapter 4. So it's more accurate to say that Vatican II talks about the baptized before the ordained, right? It talks about the baptized before the ordained, which includes not just priests and religious, not just married people or single people, but all of us, all of us rooted in that common Christian baptism, because that's where our true identity lies as sons and daughters of the Father. And it's within this chapter on the people of God that the Second Vatican Council speaks of the domestic church. So this chapter kind of goes through all the sacraments, um, beginning with with baptism and and confirmation and Eucharist, confession, anointing, holy orders, and then finally they talk about marriage. And here they write, and this quote is in your handout, it says, Finally, Christian spouses, in virtue of the sacrament of matrimony, whereby they signify and partake of the mystery of that unity and fruitful love which exists between Christ and his church, 
help each other to attain to holiness in their married life and in the rearing and education of their children. By reason of their state and rank in life, they have their own special gift among the people of God. From the wedlock of Christians, there comes a family in which new citizens of human society are born, who by the grace of the Holy Spirit received in baptism are made children of God, thus perpetuating the people of God through the centuries. The family is, so to speak, the domestic church. In it, parents should, by their word and example, be the first preachers of the faith to their children. They should encourage them in the vocation which is proper to each of them, fostering with special care vocation to a sacred state. So this, in Lumen Gentium, chapter 11, is where we see the modern reemergence of this terminology of the family as the domestic church. Everything that you will see since 1964 written about this topic will connect back here to Lumen Gentium as the source of this term. But the catechism, if you noted in the paragraph that we just read, also calls this an ancient expression. So where was it before 1964? Interestingly, in a text like the Catechism that's otherwise filled with footnotes and citations all over the place, there's no footnotes here. They say it's an ancient expression, but they don't give us their sources. It's like, quote your sources, Catechism. <laughs> you know? um, who are these ancient sources that talk about the family as a domestic church? Well, I did the homework for you, so you wouldn't have to. So, um, but I've only come up with, with really two examples of patristic writers who talk about the domestic church. It's not as widespread as you might be led to believe. Uh, the first is St. Augustine. Um, and St. Augustine, in a homily on Matthew 25, he's, the homily doesn't really have anything to do with what we would think of as an issue relating to the domestic church, but he's preaching about the man who's given, given one talent by the king, and then he returns that talent to the master. You know, he buries it in the ground, he doesn't do anything with it, and then he returns that one talent to the master. Um, and, uh, and it's a very, very short homily. It's one paragraph. If you look it up on newadvent.org, you know how on newadvent.org you can access all kinds of writings of the church fathers. If you don't know that, bookmark that, right? Uh, you can access this homily on newadvent.org. And if you call it up on your laptop, it fits on one screen. It fits, it's literally it's one paragraph. Um, if you wanted to look it up at home, it's sermon, it's sermon 44 on the New Testament. Right? And the reason why the homily is so short, St. Augustine says, is because he's tired. He spends the first half of that one paragraph complaining about how tired he is. And apparently there are some other bishops who are visiting him, and he's a little bit peeved that one of the other bishops isn't preaching for him because they all know how tired he is, and they're refusing to help out. And so, so listen, this is how St. Augustine begins his sermon. This isn't in your handout, but he says, My lords, the bishops, right? My brethren and fellow bishops have deigned to visit us and gladden us by their presence, but I know not why they are unwilling to assist me when wearied. I have said this to you, beloved, in their hearing, that your hearing may in a manner intercede for me with them, that when I ask them, they may also discourse with you in their turn. Let them dispense what they have received. Let them vouchsafe to work rather than to excuse themselves. 
Be pleased, however, to hear from me, fatigued though I be, and have difficulty in speaking a few words only. Right? So he's kind of chastising them for being lazy and really not doing their jobs. Because he says, it's your job as a bishop to pass on what you've received. And you're not doing that right now. Right? You have to pass on what you've received. In this notion of dispensing a grace received, he picks up again in a few sentences later in the homily, talking about that man who received that single talent from, from the master. He says, The whole wickedness of that servant who was reprobate and severely condemned was that he would not put the money to use. He kept the entire sum he had received, but the Lord looked for profit from it. God is covetous with regard to our salvation. If he who did not put it to use is so condemned, what must they look for who lose what they have received? We then are the dispensers. He's talking about himself and the bishops. We then are the dispensers. We put out, you receive. We look for profit. Do you live well? For this is the profit in our dealings with you. Okay? So he's drawing a parallel between God in the parable and the bishops, right? Both expect to see a profit from the gifts that they've given. And in the profit that the bishops should expect to see is are the people who hear their preaching living it out in their lives? Are they receiving the sacraments fruitfully? Are they growing in virtue? Are they growing in holiness, right? Are they putting the faith that they've received into practice? All right. So what's any of that have to do with the domestic church? At the very end, Augustine says, but do not think that this office of putting out to use does not belong to you also. You cannot execute it indeed from this elevated seat, the bishop's chair, the cathedra, right? but you can wherever you chance to be. Wherever Christ is attacked, defend him. Answer murmurers, rebuke blasphemers. From their fellowship, keep yourselves apart. So do you put out to use if you make gain of any. Discharge your offices in your own houses. A bishop is called from hence because he superintends, because he takes care and attends to others. To every man then, if he is the head of his own house, the office of the episcopate ought to belong to take care of how his household believe that none of them fall into heresy, neither wife, nor son, nor daughter, nor even his slave, because he has been bought at so great a price. So even though here St. Augustine doesn't actually use that phrase, domestic church, he's using the concept by drawing a parallel between the head of a domestic church, the head of a household, and a bishop. The responsibilities that the bishop has over his church, the head of a household has over his family. And even, he says, to his servants, right? Namely, to be vigilant about their spiritual good. But there is one place in St. Augustine's writing where he actually uses the term domestic church. And it's not to develop the idea theologically. Um, He just uses it in passing. And it's to a letter he's writing to a widow named Julia. And um, you'll find this in collections called The Good of Widowhood. And the letter is just all about how, um, you know, the vocation of being uh, a Christian widow. Um, Or Juliana, excuse me, to a widow named Juliana. And at the end of the letter, when he's kind of signing off, he asks Juliana to pray for him. And he writes, Be mindful to set me also in your prayers 
with all of your household church. In Latin, it's cum tota domestica vestra ecclesia, right? The church of your household. And he doesn't explain the term. He just kind of uses it as, um, you know, as a matter of fact. And what's interesting to me here is that Juliana is a widow. So her household may have included children, uh, may have included servants, maybe some extended family, but it would no longer have included a husband or a current sacramental marriage. And so it's, it's interesting to a point, again, that I want to make a little bit later on, but just kind of remember that. Um, and then one final church, uh, early f- church document that I'll, I'll look at here before we take a short break. There's another um, patristic writer that does use this term, domestic church, and that's St. John Chrysostom. Um, you might not be as familiar with him as you are with St. Augustine. Uh, he lived roughly around the same time, and he was probably just as influential as St. Augustine in terms of the early theological development of the church. Um, he was a prolific writer. He was a renowned preacher. The name Chrysostom means golden-mouthed, which was a nickname given to him because of his eloquence in preaching. Uh, and he was the Archbishop of Constantinople, and he did a lot to contribute to the liturgies of the Eastern churches, uh, which they still practice today. A lot of St. John Chrysostom's homilies dealt with the subject of marriage and family life. In fact, in the 1980s, um, a collection of homilies he preached uh, on the topic was put together in English translation. You can buy this on Amazon. It's called On Marriage and Family Life. Uh, and it's a good little book. Um, you read through it, and for a book that was written 1,600 years ago, men and women haven't changed much. So <laughs> a lot of the advice is still very... Uh, Very much appropriate. Uh, But in there, you can find a particular homily that he wrote. Um, It's called Homily 20, and it's on Ephesians chapter 5, which is a chapter in Ephesians where St. Paul discusses marriage, first by telling husbands and wives to be subordinate to one another, right? And then he ends by saying that marriage is a great mystery, and he's talking about Christ and the church. I won't read the whole passage to you. You're familiar. This is the one where uh, the husband is, is called to be Christ for his wife. The wife is called to be to you know to serve her husband as the church serves Christ. And you have that dynamic between Christ and the church. And that passage brings out more than any other in the New Testament how that relationship between husband and wife is meant to be an image of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so that's what St. John Chrysostom is talking about in this homily. Um, And unlike St. Augustine's one-paragraph homily, um, his goes on for about 20 pages. So I'm not going (laughs) to read his homily to you. But the pertinent section is this, right? He's he's been discussing uh, the nature of spousal authority and governance within a household. And he talks at great length about St. Paul's description um, of the husband as the head and the wife as the body. And he talks about how there's a need for unity between head and body. And he talks about how the head has authority over the body, but at the same time, the head is at the service of the body, just as the body is at the service of the head. And he even says, quote, the wife is a second authority, but nevertheless, she possesses real authority and equality of dignity while the husband still retains the role of headship. The welfare of the household is thus maintained. And then he says... If we regulate our households in this way, we will also be fit to oversee the church. For indeed, the household is a little church. Therefore, it is possible for us to surpass all others in virtue 
by becoming good husbands and wives. And what's important here is that St. John Chrysostom not only talks about the home of a Christian family as being a little church, but also that married life and family life can be a means to grow in virtue. And not just to grow in virtue, but he says to surpass all others in virtue. And that's one of the other major themes that's taken up by the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium, that of the universal call to holiness. That holiness is not something that can only be achieved by those in religious life or those in the clerical state, but by the laity, and most especially by the laity living out the marital vocation. Um, we'll take a quick like five minute break for uh, people to stretch and uh, refill their coffee cups and things and then we'll come back. Uh, let's try and be back in here, you know, let's say by 11.20 we'll restart again. So.